Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Historical Society of the New York Courts, where we discuss why legal history matters. I'm David Goodwin, a society trustee and a lawyer in New York City. I also help edit the Society's Journal of Legal History, called Judicial Notice. And today, as part of our continuing series on our authors, I will be speaking with attorney and historian Bob Pickett. Mr. Pickett has written two pieces for Judicial Notice. In our 13th volume in 2018, he contributed William M. Everts, Forgotten Lawyer, Statesman, and Second Avenue Fixture. And for our current volume, Bob has turned his attention to Elihu Root, Nobel Peace Prize recipient and Manhattan real estate pioneer. A graduate of Columbia Law School and an adjunct professor at Fordham Law School, Bob is a former bureau chief of the New York Attorney General's Charities Bureau and currently serves as the vice president and general counsel of Phipps Houses, a not-for-profit organization that develops, owns, and manages low-income housing. Bob is a Queens native and Manhattan resident, and he is the author of New York's Legal Landmarks, a guide to legal edifices, institutions, lore, history, and curiosities on the city streets. Bob, welcome to the program. Good morning, David. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become interested in New York's legal history? Well, I've lived in New York City all my life, and I've always been interested in history and New York City history in particular. But the, the, this sort of shift to New York City legal history really is the result of a specific event that I can recall about six or seven years ago. I was walking in um, Sunset Park, Brooklyn, part of a plan to explore neighborhoods in New York City that I did not know. And I came upon this really magnificent courthouse. Uh, It was obviously built in the 20s or 30s. And over one door were the words magistrate's court and over the other door were the words municipal court. And even though I'd been practicing law for over 20 years at that point, I'd never heard of either of those courts. And it got me really interested in the history of that courthouse, the history of those courts that do not exist anymore. And that led me to research and write my book, New York Legal Landmarks, which is a historical guidebook to New York City for lawyers, focusing mostly on old courthouses, but also on uh, figures of uh, significance in history, lawyers who are from New York and New York City locations associated with them. So, for example, in addition to the two people I wrote articles about for uh, judicial notice, the book talks about Charles Evans Hughes, John Foster Dulles, uh, Henry Stimson, and of course, uh, the many Supreme Court justices who are from New York City. In fact, when I used to give book talks about the book, I would throw out a trivia question and say I would give a free copy of the book to anyone who could answer this question. And it was a better question four years ago when Justice Scalia was still living, but I would ask, there are currently four individuals from New York City who are on the United States Supreme Court. I'm not going to ask you to tell me who they are. I'm going to ask you to tell me where they went to high school. And if you can, you will get a free copy of my book. Would you like to take a shot at that? Oh, gosh. Um, I know Sotomayor went to Spelman. Yes. And that's from reading My Beloved World. Oh, gosh. Uh, I know from what you said before, it's Scalia and also Ginsburg, um, at least. But I unfortunately don't know where they went to high school. So uh, I'm sad to say I'm one out of four on those. Okay. So uh, Justice Ginsburg went to James Madison in Brooklyn. Uh, Justice Scalia went to Xavier High School on uh, 16th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. And Justice Kagan went to Hunter College High School when it was located in Midtown Manhattan. 
And I would always breathe a sigh of relief, mock sigh of relief, that no one answered that question correctly, and I didn't have to give away a free copy of my book. Um, but anyway, so the, so the book is about these about legal figures in history who were lawyers who were associated with New York City, and that's how I got onto William Everts and onto LSU Root, and that's the origin of the two articles that I wrote for Judicial Notice. So before we get onto them, what did you end up learning about that courthouse in Sunset Park? Well, um, until 1962, until uh, an amendment to the New York Constitution, there were small neighborhood courts scattered throughout the history. Municipal courts, which were sort of a forerunner of the current civil court uh, for civil matters with lo- very low jurisdictional amounts. At the time, it was $1,000 that increased to $2,000. And then the magistrate courts, which were uh, courts around the city for low-level criminal offenses. But that, through a court reorganization in 1962, they were done away with. And of course, the proposed court reorganization plan uh, might actually reintroduce municipal courts in New York, if I'm remembering correctly. Well, that's right. And even now, there are some uh, neighborhood courts that are in existence. There's one in Red Hook. There's one that reopened in this old courthouse on West 54th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue. So there is a move back to neighborhood courts. But uh, there was a shift away from that in 1962. So let's turn first to your article on William Everts. Um, Your piece on this forgotten lawyer statesman begins with the interesting observation that there aren't any parks, high schools, or statues in his honor. Who was William Everts, and why has New York forgotten him? Well, I think it's incredible that someone who not only was the leading lawyer of his day, but served um, the U.S. government three high-level positions as a U.S. Attorney General, as a U.S. Secretary of State, and as a U.S. Senator from New York should be so completely forgotten. Uh, Everts was, um, he wasn't originally from New York City. He was from Boston originally and went to Yale for college and then Harvard for for law school, then came to New York City in about 1840 and very quickly established himself as a lawyer and got involved in Republican politics at the time. Um, He uh, nominated William Seward for president at the 1860 uh, Republican convention. As as you know, Abraham Lincoln ultimately got the uh, nomination and Everts moved uh, that Lincoln's nomination be unanimous. He also, around that time, uh, played a role in an important civil rights case of the day. It was sort of New York's analog to the Dred Scott case. It was called the Lemon Slave case. And fortunately, uh, the result was the opposite of that in the Dred Scott case, in that uh, the New York Court of Appeals held that having brought a a slave into New York uh, rendered that slave free. And Everts was the one who argued the case before the New York Court of Appeals. Um, now, he, he, another, another very prominent case that he handled was uh, the defense of Henry Ward Beecher, who was a leading abolitionist, one of the most famous men in America in the second half of the 19th century, the brother of um, Harriet Beecher Stowe. And uh, he was a, he, his parish in Brooklyn Heights was renowned. People came from all over. They came over in something called Beecher Boats, crossing the East River to hear him preach. He was really one of the first celebrities in the United States. But a former friend of his accused him of, ha- of, um, of having an affair with his wife, and he was sued for alienation of affection. And this was a very scandalous trial of the century. And Everett's represented Beecher, and the result was a hung jury. I'm compelled institutionally at this juncture to note two things. First, with regard to the Lemon Slave case itself, 
I believe we actually have a podcast that is either already out or coming out in short order, featuring an interview with our former president, retired Court of Appeals Judge Al Rosenblatt, who's done a lot of work on the Lemon Slave case. And also, Judicial Notice actually has in its archives a published article on the Henry Ward Beecher trial, which focused on his cross-examination at trial. Um, That was in our 13th volume in 2018. Um, And while I believe it mentioned Everett's role, it wasn't focused on him as a participant. Those are probably the most significant cases he handled in private practice. But turning to his government service, uh, first he was retained by Andrew Johnson to represent Johnson in the impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate. And we all know how that turned out. It failed by one vote to get the necessary two-thirds for a conviction. Uh, And Everett gave a very long four-day closing argument. And uh, after that, Johnson was so grateful that when his U.S. Attorney General resigned, Johnson appointed Everts as Attorney General to serve out the last eight months of Johnson's term in 1868 and 1869. So that was his first cabinet position. Then he did service to another president who once again appointed him to a cabinet position. You probably remember the disputed 1876 election between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. And an an electoral commission was created and Everett's represented Hayes in that that election. There were a lot of accusations of fraud in the election. Ultimately, a deal was struck and federal troops were uh, removed from the South and, and the Democrats withdrew their objections to Rutherford B. Hayes's election. And that's how Hayes was eventually awarded the presidency. But in gratitude to Everts, President Hayes named Everts his Secretary of State. And he served the full four years as Secretary of State in the Hayes administration. And then finally, his last government position was when he was appointed by the New York State Legislature. This was before the Constitution was amended to have U.S. Senators elected by direct vote. The legislature appointed him to serve as U.S. Senator from New York State, and he served as U.S. Senator for six years. And that's when he was the driving force behind the Everts Act, which reconstituted the federal courts and created the system we currently know. So tell us a little bit more about that. What did the Everts Act actually do to the federal courts as they had previously existed? Sure. Uh, before that, you had your United States District Courts and you had your Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court. And in between those was this curious hybrid court called the Circuit Court. And there no, were no judges who were only circuit courts. The judges who served on the Circuit Court came from U.S. District Judges and one Supreme Court Justice who was recruited, and it was typically someone who was from that area so that the, to minimize the amount of travel on the U.S. Supreme Court. So this hybrid court served as both a trial court and as, a, and as an appellate court, um, but it was a very murky Byzantine jurisdictional structure, and the Everts Act clarified all that and created the current system that we know with three levels of courts, U.S. District Court, appeals to the court of appeal to the circuit courts of appeals and from there on certiorari to the u.s supreme court it's funny you know his his service was not all that distinguished he was only u.s attorney general for eight months and it wasn't and he did he was it wasn't nothing that he did was that was truly remarkable when he was u.s secretary of state and there's that one thing for which he was he's remembered as a u.s senator he was also and this sort of suggests that he should be remembered. He was also sort of a leading civic figure in New York City. He was, 
anytime there was a dedication of something significant, Cleopatra's Needle, the Statue of Liberty, the the Seventh Regiment Armory, there there was Everts speaking at the uh, at the groundbreaking ceremony. He was a very witty person. He was celebrated for his 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 great wit, and he was he was a real figure in New York City, and that's why. It is so incredible. It was so incredible to me that such a figure should be completely forgotten. And the only way in which he appears in the city is above the doorways of these two tenements on the northwest corner of Second Avenue and 14th Street. And why might you ask? Is he on those uh, two tenements? Well, that was the site from about 1870 till his death in 1901 of his mansion. It was this very grand mansion that occupied the corner. Of Second Avenue and 14th Street, and when that mansion was torn down, the developer who was building very modest tenements, uh, nonetheless, as a tribute to Everts, decided to inscribe above the doorway of each uh, words associated with Everts. So one says the U.S. Senate, and the other says the W.M. Everts. And the only one I noticed when I was in high school in the 1970s was U.S. Senate, and I was really curious about that because I knew the Senate never convened in the in the East Village. But uh, I was a teenager, and I guess I, there, were other, there were other thoughts that crowded that, that thought out. Um, but then I learned about all this 40 years later. So that was, that's why it was always so intriguing to me, and I really wanted to publicize Everts. And you had actually shared with me via your New York Law Journal article an interesting postscript about what happened when you tried to solve this problem of Everts's lack of representation in the city's collective consciousness. Well, that was an interesting foray for me, uh, an unusual one for me, into New York City politics and mores. As you're probably aware, there are honorary street co-namings. Very often, they're for um, deceased first responders or you know community activists and things like that. And I thought Everts was a perfect candidate because the tie into that, uh, tie in between that location and him is engraved in those two buildings. So I thought he was a perfect candidate for an honorary street co-naming, and as someone who had been such a celebrated New York City person and such a you know given so much service to the federal government, I thought he was the perfect candidate. However, I learned otherwise. Um, I learned first of all, I educated myself about the process. First, you go to the local community board, and if they're okay with it, it goes to the local city council member, and then it goes on to the city council. And once you go through all those various stages. You have the approval, and the street co-naming is erected. So I followed that process. I made a submission to the transportation committee of the local community board, and I was sort of mindful that in twenty—I guess this would have been twenty nineteen at the time, or perhaps twenty eighteen—you know, being an old white guy was not sort of the most obvious uh, uh, candidate for a street co-naming, and in keeping with the, the spirit of the times. So I realized it was important to play up his civil rights role and his role in that very important civil rights case, the Lemon Slave case. I made my presentation to the community board. I nailed it. There was a 10-0 vote with one abstention, and I was on my way. I provided additional information to the city council. The matter seemed to be wending its way up to the, to the city council for approval. And then I got this ominous email that the community board had decided to revisit its decision, and I was welcome to attend and defend my original proposal, which I did, and uh, I suspected I knew what the reason was, and that was the fact that Everts had had this connection with Andrew Johnson, who was a racist, who was a white supremacist. He had served in his, uh, in his, in his cabinet, and he had represented him in the impeachment trial, 
And the point I made was that uh, Everts in no way shared uh, President Johnson's views on civil rights. And in, in fact, he had been a civil rights advocate, primarily in that lemon slave case. I knew that it was a doomed cause. I could get the sense that the, you know, the, the, it was a foregone conclusion that uh, the approval would be withdrawn. And in fact, it was withdrawn. Something that really amused me was that afterwards, I learned about the very thorough and impressive vetting process that a lawyer for the city council had undertaken. And the reason why the approval for Everett's was withdrawn was not just the connection with Johnson, but also that while he was secretary of state, he had opposed Mormon immigration. And that, I mean, that, that, that really floored me. First of all, I was very impressed that the uh, lawyer for the city council had found that fact, because if you Google Everett's, it doesn't come up in any of the things you find. You have to know what you're looking for and Google Mormons and Everett's to find it. So I was very impressed with, impressed with that. And I sort of, I got it. You know, this is an honor. And if someone is remotely controversial, there's no reason for the city to go out on a limb uh, and make an honorary street coning for someone. It's sort of interesting to think when we're doing research projects in the future that one way we might go about them is to submit a street corner or alley name request to the city, have them do the research, dig up all this sort of thing, and then submit a freedom of information law request for that research. I actually, I'm sorry, I actually had thought of doing that. I, I may do, do it yet. With the shutdown now, it sort of uh, got shunted to the side, but Jumping from your article on Everts to your current article on Elihu Root, who is, of course, most famous to me for being the Root in the Root Tilden Kern Scholarship at NYU Law, it's very much an article about his specific history as a real estate pioneer in Manhattan. You talk about, for instance, how he built that home on Park Avenue before it was at all fashionable, when Park Avenue was still essentially an open train yard. How is Root's story also a story about New York City real estate and New York City architecture? Well, you know, Root was a very significant person in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, I've known about him for years because I went to Hamilton College in central New York, and he was, probably still is, the most famous graduate from Hamilton College. That probably meant more in 1920 than it does in 2020, because now not that many people know about him. I, you know about him through the Ruth Tilden Scholarship, but he's not a household name by, by any means. But I had always, I'd always known about him because, because of his connection to, to Hamilton College. And I thought he would be a, a good candidate for an article. And when I was reading his biography written by another prominent uh, New York lawyer, Philip Jessup, also a Hamilton College graduate, I came upon these two real estate connection. So to write about someone who was a secretary of war, a secretary of state, a U.S. senator, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and to structure the article around his connection to Manhattan real estate was intended to be somewhat tongue-in-cheek. It, it, you know, I'm sort of minimizing one of these obvious significant uh, accomplishments and just sort of focusing on these two connections to Manhattan real estate history and through that trying to work in the story of Ebert's uh, public service. So that, that's, really, that's really how the, the article came about. He, you know, at, at, he was from Clinton, New York, where Hamilton College is located. He went there and he was the valedictorian. Uh, after he graduated, he came to New York City, went to NYU Law School and established himself as a lawyer. And uh, one of his early cases actually was something he 
went on to be not all that proud of. He was part of a defense team uh, representing Boss Tweed in one of the many trials against Boss Tweed. But he became one of the leading lawyers of his day. And then President McKinley tapped him to be Secretary of War. When McKinley was assassinated and Teddy Roosevelt took over as president, Roosevelt kept him in that office. And then uh, Root stepped down, but Roosevelt brought him back as Secretary of State. So interestingly, both Root and Everts held two cabinet positions. They were both Secretary of State, Everts uh, Attorney General, Root also Secretary of War. And um, af after he left the cabinet, he was, uh, he was appointed, he was still by the legislature at that point, he was appointed a U.S. Senator from New York. And he died, I think, around 1930 or so. But he was a leading lawyer. He created the firm that grew into Winthrop Stimson, which is now Pillsbury Winthrop. And he was both a leading lawyer and someone who made a tremendous contribution uh, at, at the federal level. And that's one thing that really impresses me, how at this time, when I think about the, the Roots and the Stimpsons and, and the Charles Evans Hugheses, a couple of things. First of all, their practice was not specialized the way lawyers' practices are today. They were advisors to corporations. They were litigators. They did the whole ball of wax. They drafted wills, everything. So that's one thing that's very different. And then also, sadly, it is sort of a lost tradition of celebrated New York City lawyers going to Washington or going to Albany to serve, uh, to serve their state or to serve their country. And you can sort of understand it when you think about what the climate is and what it, you have to go through now to get elected uh, or appointed to any position, it, it, it is somewhat un understandable, but it is unfortunate there's, there's this loss of talent for these great legal minds in New York City that don't go to Washington and to Albany as much as they did 100 years ago. But to springboard off of that, why is it that you think we don't see this kind of generalist who makes good path anymore? Well, the generalist piece of it is partly just because the law has gotten so much more complex than it was 100 years ago, and there's just there's a tremendous need to specialize. You can't master all these different areas that have complex statutory frameworks. It's just not possible even for the most brilliant lawyers. So that's the reason why today you don't have the same Renaissance lawyers that you had 100 years ago. And um, as for the decline in government service, I think you just have to look at what's happened in the country over the last few years uh, to understand why that, that has happened. So in terms of your current position working at the Phipps Houses, how has your research and historical interest influenced what you do now as a practicing attorney? Well, Phipps Houses is an interesting, it, it's very historic because it goes all the way back to 1905. It is New York City's oldest and largest nonprofit developer of low income and affordable housing. And it is the creation of Henry Phipps. Henry Phipps was Andrew Carnegie's partner at Carnegie Steel in Pittsburgh. They were boyhood friends, uh, Carnegie and Phipps. And uh, Phipps was the CFO. And after JP Morgan took Carnegie Steel public and uh, created US Steel, both Carnegie and Phipps had a ton of money. Uh, they both relocated to New York. Carnegie had actually been coming to New York a lot more before that, but Phipps relocated to New York City, built a mansion on 87th Street and Fifth Avenue, and they both devoted a portion of their fortunes to philanthropy. We know that Carnegie built libraries all over the country, Carnegie libraries, and Phipps turned to affordable housing. In 1905, he gave a million dollars to build 
a model low-income tenement. It was between First and Second Avenue. It doesn't exist anymore. It was torn down in urban renewal in the late 1950s or 1960s. But back then, a million dollars could buy a lot of affordable housing. It was a very solid construction. And at the same time, Phipps Houses was created by special act of the legislature. So it's a corporation that was formed in 1905 by the New York State Legislature, and it exists continuously to this day. And now it does not still rely on private philanthropy to build its buildings. It taps into government programs that subsidize affordable housing. But it essentially is doing the same thing it did 115 years ago. And do you feel like it very well complements your interest in history? In a sense, yes. I mean, I am not a real estate lawyer. I am not a transactional lawyer, which would be the typical profile for the general counsel of this large developer of affordable housing. But I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to be the general counsel of Phipps Houses, which has such a rich history going back to 1905. So that taps directly into my interest in New York City history. Were you doing similar work as part of the Attorney General's Charities Bureau? Well, yes, that, that, you know, very often in the Charities Bureau, when we are either investigating complaints about not-for-profits or approving or reviewing proposed significant transactions by not-for-profits, very often they are some of the most significant or in any event historic not-for-profits in the city. So you get exposed to such a wide range of non-profits. And for every human endeavor, there is a corresponding nonprofit. So you get exposed to a wide range of things in that work in the Charities Bureau and a wide range of organizations throughout New York City. So that also satisfied my interest in New York City history. So where do you see your research going from here? What's next after Everts and Root? Well, the next, the book that I'm working on right now and researching, and it's been curtailed a little bit because of the, the shutdown, will have something of my interested great New York City lawyers. It's called Their New York Sojourn. The premise is it's individuals, notable people in history and science, the arts, literature, whom you do not associate with New York City. Uh, and it'll be about the time they spent in New York City, their connection to New York City. And it could range from Davy Crockett to Ho Chi Minh. But there are a number of lawyers. So that's the carryover from my re- the research I've done for my book and for these articles for the New York Courts Historical Society. So, for example, um, William O. Douglas was from Washington State, but he came to New York City both to go to Columbia Law School and to work a bit at Cravath, did not like New York City, returned to Washington State, and then ultimately was appointed an associate justice of the Supreme Court. So I'll write a bit about his New York sojourn. Similarly, Neil Gorsuch went to Columbia College. He's not somebody you would associate in New York City. So there, there might be some interesting stories about the time that he spent as an undergraduate in New York City. And then there are a number of lawyers or judges who got their start in New York City, who were raised in New York City, but who did not practice law here, who did not spend their adult lives here. So Felix Frankfurter is, is, is a good example of that. He was raised um, on the Lower East Side, but he went to Harvard Law School. They practiced a little bit in New York City, but really he, he very quickly became a professor at Harvard Law School was appointed a Supreme Court justice by FDR and lived out his life in DC and was ultimately buried in Mount Auburn Cemetery in Boston. So he really left behind New York City. Um, But others, Antonin Antonin Scalia never worked professionally as a lawyer in New York City. He's from Elmhurst, Queens. He went to Xavier, but he didn't go to college here. He never didn't go to law school here, never practiced law here. And then there um, there are a few others. The two recent attorneys general, 
Eric Holder, Stuyvesant High School, Columbia Law School, but never practiced here and lives in Washington, D.C., and also our current Attorney General, William Barr, who very surprisingly grew up on the liberal Upper West Side, and his father, I think, was either a headmaster or some other official at a progressive uh, New York City private school, Dalton. He turned his back on New York City, at least professionally, and left it and has been living in Washington, D.C. for, I think, for decades now. So there is something in this book, New York Sojourn, that will continue my research about New York City lawyers. It's interesting to think how many people outside of the law that brief tenure in New York effects. Uh, you could have a chapter on Frank Zappa's legendary residency at the Garrick Theater, although there's not much of a legal hook to that, unfortunately. So I've learned from watching a lot of Jimmy Fallon during lockdown that it's always good to get in a pitch for the upcoming book and also the book that's currently available. Um, so having just discussed your upcoming project, give us a quick plug for New York's legal landmarks and who that book would be right for. Well, I've always, you know, obviously it was always in my interest to pitch it broadly to anyone who is interested in New York City. And that is true to a degree, but it really is the New York City lawyer who is interested in history and maybe even more particularly the litigator who spent a lot of time in the, in the courthouses that I write about. Uh, but there's enough about historical figures that it's not limited to, to litigators. So really the prime audience for that book is the New York City lawyer who is interested in history. And it's, you know, it's at this point, it's not available in too many stores, but it still is available on Amazon. New York's legal landmarks. Thank you so much, Bob, for joining us. As I mentioned at the top of the program, Bob Pickett's new article, Elihu Root, Nobel Peace Prize recipient and Manhattan real estate pioneer, is featured in the current issue of Judicial Notice. If you'd like to learn more about the Historical Society of the New York Courts, please visit our website at history.nycourts.gov and consider joining. I'm David Goodwin. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.